when I, when I grew up, of course I grew up in the 50s and it was a very, very different era. And the understanding that we got of, I got of God as a kid growing up, that it was a God set on a throne out there somewhere and kind of, um, you know, kind of moved people around like, like pieces on a chessboard. He did things like kind of manipulated people and manipulated life like, like someone who'd be, be playing with, with pieces. In fact, when I was a kid, we used to sing a song, and uh, it went like this. It said, somewhere in outer space, God has prepared a place for those who trust Him and obey. Obviously, I was not raised Catholic. I was raised in a Southern Evangelical uh, tradition, and we would sing that. And so we would think that God was out there somewhere sitting on a throne, doing things for us if we could talk Him into it. And while that's probably a pretty good description of a, a, a God, a God from Greek or Roman mythology. That's not a description of, of our God. It's not a description of the God of the universe. And if that's what we develop in our young life, that that's what our understanding of God is, that, that he's out there somewhere and suddenly we see how big the universe is and he doesn't, we're not sure where he is and we can lose sight of him. And, and that's one of those misconceptions that actually leads people into atheism. And some people view God as a supersized version of ourselves, that, that he is very human-like. And, we, and we, we need to try to talk him into things. You know, he's like a super superman. And he believes in truth and justice in the American way. And when things happen in our lives that just don't seem to fit to our understanding of God, well, you know, why isn't our super superman saving the day? Why isn't he fixing things? Why isn't he taking care of things the way that, that he should? And that's, again, one of those conceptions of God that leads people into atheism, because if we expect God to be superman, we're going to be let down. And then some people develop a, a version of God that he's almost like a vending machine. That, that if you can, you know, he, he doles out miracles if we can get the right formula. If we can say the right prayers in the right way or, or do the right things or the right acts of devotion. And, and if we can somehow force God's hand to dole out a miracle for us. You know, that's actually probably not a bad description of Santa Claus. We want to get on the nice list and not the naughty list, right? If we're on the nice list, then God's going to take care of us. And if we're on the naughty list, well, then he's not. And that is one of those, again, one of those concepts of God that leads people to atheism because those gods don't exist. They're figments of imagination. And they're figments that people like to believe in because it gives them some element of control. If God is someone who will hand out a miracle, if I just punch the right buttons, then we, that gives me some element of control over God. But all of those perceptions of God lead to confusion disillusionment, disappointment with God, and ultimately to loss of faith. So who is God? 
how do we know what God is like? And the way for us to do that is to listen to what God has to say about himself. I always like to go back to the, the story of Moses at the burning bush. See, Moses was an interesting character. He was raised in, uh, in the courts of Egypt. He was raised in Pharaoh's house. And so he was raised with a great understanding of all the gods of Egypt and how they interplayed and interacted with each other, their battles and their squabbles, and the various magical incantations that you would use to control these gods, to try to placate these gods, to make these gods be kind to you. See, most, of, most pagan religion has to do with, with two things, how to, how to placate God and how to get God's favor. It's all about me trying to manipulate God. And that's the way Moses was raised. And unfortunately, that's the way a lot of Americans, even in the church, are raised. That we're looking for ways that we can keep God from being angry and get God to give us favors. But Moses, raised in, in, in the house of Egypt, he comes across a very strange event. He comes across a burning bush. There's a bush that is a fire but it's not being consumed. Now, the, the scriptures usually refer to it as a burning bush. That's probably not a great translation. It's, it's a bush, but it's glowing, it's shining, it's radiating. I mean, the, the, the Hebrew language does not have a lot of vocabulary. And so when, in Hebrew, they're trying to express things, um, they don't have a lot of choices of words they can use to express them. So when it talks about the burning bush, think of it in terms of a radiating bush, a bush that's emanating energy. And Moses sees this, and he realizes it's something special. And the voice, of course, comes out of the bush that says, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. And so Moses does that. He takes off his shoes. He's standing there before this, this glowing, radiating, burning bush. And he asks a logical question for someone who was raised in the courts of Egypt. What is your name? See, he doesn't know what God he's talking to. He wants to know what God this is. What's this God's name? Because all magical incantations in Egypt begin with the God's name. You can't, you can't make an incantation if you don't know who it is that you're making the incantation to. So he asks this bush, what is your name? And then comes the reply. That is one of the most profound experiences of any human, anywhere, at any time. God responds to Moses and he says, I am. I am. That's not much of a name. God's name is I am. Now, we, we, when we sing, see this song sometimes in music or sometimes in some translations of the Bible, 
You see that's spelled Y-A-H-W-E-H. And because it takes these Hebrew letters that are really a form of the Hebrew verb to be. Yihyeh is the Hebrew verb to be. And it takes these letters and we try to pronounce it in various different ways. Because how do we call God I am? When God gives his name as I am, he is pointing out that he is not some supreme being in the midst of a pantheon of supreme beings who fight and bicker and, and, and do all the things, you know, all the human characteristics we like to ascribe to God. He is saying that he is all being. God is all being. God is all that is. I am. But then he goes on and he specifies, he clarifies that with again two more Hebrew words. And one of those words is chesed. And chesed is Again, a word because Hebrew's got such a limited vocabulary that can be translated in a lot of different ways, a lot of different nuances to that word. But the word can be translated love, compassion, mercy, pity. God says that he is not a being, supreme or otherwise. God is all being, and that being is interacts with us in love and mercy, compassion, kindness. God defines himself as being that interacts in love, mercy, compassion, and kindness. And then there's a second Hebrew word, and when you read in the scriptures, you could, you'll see how that all plays out. But that second Hebrew word is emet, which again, can be translated a number of different ways. Truth, faithfulness, fidelity, constancy. God is explaining who he is by what he is. And he is all that is. And he interacts with us through love and through truth. This is a very profound understanding of God. Okay. Is this working now? Yeah. Okay, so we're only a handheld. I don't know what's happened to that. We want to place God out there somewhere. We want to make God something apart from us, something separated from us. But the very nature of God is that he relates to us. He relates to us in truth and in love. He's not a member of some circus of gods that bicker and argue. He is all and in all. St. Paul gives him, talks about him in that way. God is all and is in all. In other words, God is I am. 
God is all being. There is nothing that exists that does not exist in God. St. Peter says, in him we live and move and have our being. Most of us imagine some separation between us and God. We even imagine some separation between the universe and God. But see, this is the exciting part. In the incarnation, God becomes flesh. There is no longer any separation between God, between Creator and creation. We are all brought together into one. It's a great act of wholeness that we are made whole when we are made one with God and one with one another. That's the whole meaning of the Catholic Church, of the Catholic faith, that we are brought together in wholeness. Prior to Christ, every place had a God. And they were considered to be lo local. There, there, were, there were just little local deities that, that you would have. And there were so many of them. In Athens alone, there were 66,000 different deities. I don't know how that happens. <laughs> they had 66,000 different deities. And most of them controlled some little spot. A grove of trees, or a spring, or a house, or there was all these little spots for all these little deities. Interestingly, you know, the Romans were the same thing. They, they inherited all of the Greek gods and they made up some of their own. And you know what God in, in Rome was more prayed to than any other? Was the god Fortuna. The God of good luck. <laughs> People have this have always had this desire to see God as separated from them and trying to placate God or trying to win his favor, try to get something from God. But in the incarnation we see that there is no separation between creator and creation. God became flesh. He is all and he is in all. In him we live and move and have our being. One of the things that I've noticed and in, in I've talked to so many people who have had this experience. I've had this experience myself before a number of times. And when you're, you, know, you get it, you're in prayer, and suddenly everything seems to change. And somehow your connection to God is so much more intense. And you realize that you have connected somehow to God. And the most common description I have ever heard of that experience is, is this. People said, it was like I was suddenly floating in an ocean of love. And some of you may have had that very experience. 
Or you've had an experience that you say, okay, that, that sounds right. Floating in an ocean of love. Consumed by God all around because in Him we live and move and are. The story goes of a couple of fish who were swimming around and they were um, talking about fish things, you know, whatever fish talk about. And uh, they, as they were swimming, another fish was coming the other direction towards them. And they paused and they ex you know, exchanged fish niceties. And before they separated to go back you know, to their uh, opposite directions, the one fish said to the other two, he said, have a good day. The water's fine. And the other two fish looked at each other and said, what's water? You see, we exist within God's very presence, but we don't notice it. It's as much a part of our existence as the air around us, but we don't notice it. Because we're so distracted. We're so dealing with things like the job and the mortgage and the family and the kids and, and so many things are going on in life. We're so distracted by what we see. We lose connection with what we don't see. But that which we know by faith. And that is that God is. He is all and in all. In Him we live and move and have our being. God is not out there somewhere. He's not a Superman. He's not a Santa Claus. He's not a, a, a Zeus or a Jupiter or someone who's playing chess with the world. He is the world and is all that is beyond the world. He is never, ever separated from us. I learned this when I was 16. I was, um, I was raised in a very devout Christian home, but when I was a young teen, my dad left, and the family fell apart, and my life fell apart. And you know, it's, it's not an uncommon story, is it? And you know, as, as a middle teen, I did what middle teens do when they, uh, their life is falling apart, and I became more and more rebellious. And, you know, started carrying a switchblade to school and got into fights, started drinking heavily. And um, I remember when I was 16 years old, I ran. A, I was with a bunch of Christians, Jesus people. We talk, I've talked about Jesus people before. Jesus people, they're all excited. They're playing guitars in the parks, you know. They're all happy and they have a great peace in their life and I didn't have any peace. And I knew that I'd been raised in the church, but I didn't have any. I didn't have any relationship with God, and I remember uh, praying by, you know, all by myself. Nobody, you know, wasn't didn't wasn't in the, you know, down at the altar of a Billy Graham crusade. Just prayed all by myself and said, "Jesus, if you come back to me, I promise I won't ever leave you again." And I remember hearing the voice of God right there say to me, "I've never left you. He can't." leave us. He is the very essence of our being, of everyone's being. This, con this idea of us being separated from God 
is really a pagan concept. It's not the God who declares himself, I am. I am love. I am truth. My grandmother was a Pentecostal, and uh, she had an interesting thing about her. She was, she'd always kind of, you know, like, like a good grandma, she's always kind of got me out of the corner of her eye. And she seemed to know just as about as I was about to do something that I shouldn't. And she'd wag her finger at me and she says, God is watching you. As if God is something we need to be afraid of. <laughs> We need to hide from God. Jonah tried that. He thought, well, sure, if I can just get out of Israel, I won't have to, you know, answer God, because God, God can't hear me outside of Israel. In the ancient Jews concept, God lived inside the temple in Jerusalem. He sat on the Ark of the Covenant. They called it the mercy seat. That's where God sat. So Jonah doesn't like what God wants him to do, so he says, well, I'll just leave town. God won't be able to see me. But Jonah discovers there's no running away from God. I mean, the prophets were constantly trying to move people to understand God is the God of the whole earth. God is the God of the whole universe. He doesn't live in some little temple. He doesn't sit on top of those golden angels. He is all and is in all. I'm going to do a special session which I'll just put online because I don't want to give everybody a headache. You have to kind of volunteer for this one. Which is basically on theological implications of quantum mechanical theory. And, and if, if just that phrase is frightening to you, there's probably not a session you want to, to, to listen to. But I want to make this point. We all, you know, when you go to school, not when I went to school, but if you went to school after, you know, it, where you, you, you learn a little bit more about, you know, the inner workings of matter. And that matter is itself is almost an illusion. It's, it's really energy. Everything and everything that the, the world is made up is, is energy and a vibration. And you slow the vibrations down, and, and everything sinks into a singularity. And the entire Earth will fit inside a teacup if you slow the vibrations down. You speed the vibrations up too much, and then you have thermal nuclear explosions. Right? The energy. It, matter ceases to exist and all just turns into energy. It just goes everywhere. But you dig down beyond that, but jump beyond the, the atomic level into the uh, the quarks, the upside up quarks, down quarks, sideways quarks, you know, and, and all the various little what the 137 identified uh, particles, subatomic particles. Now they keep trying, they keep discovering new ones. You dig down past that, and you know what the entire universe is made out of? Tiny, tiny strings that vibrate in 11 dimensions. And the harmony 
created by these tiny strings to develop, generates the energy that we see, that eventually we see as matter. In other words, in every atom of every cell of your being, God is singing to you a love song. The entire universe is made of music. The psalmist writes, two things I know. With God belong, to God belong all power. And with you, O Lord, is unfailing love. When we begin to see that the entire universe exists because of this divine energy, this divine power that permeates everything, suddenly the incarnation doesn't just make sense, it becomes a necessity for the universe to function. The creator and creation are by nature one and the same. Now, of course, whenever I, I teach on this, people start to get nervous and they start thinking, oh my, he's not a pantheist, isn't I'm not saying that the rocks and trees are, are gods. No, not at all. But that everything that exists, exists because it exists in God, who is I am who is all being and who relates to us. We experience God through his nature of truth and his nature of love. Now what happens, of course, is we really would like things to go differently. Picture it this way. God has given to each of us this tremendous privilege of existence in a physical universe. That we get to exist in this physical universe with physical bodies, interacting with other physical bodies and interacting with the nature around us. And it's like we're on a treasure hunt. That God has this going through life in search of gold and silver and diamonds. And we can do that because we exist in this physical realm where we can interact with one another and interact with nature. But the gold and the silver and the diamonds that we collect on this treasure hunt are not the stuff that, we're the, that get left behind. It's not the stuff that gets burned, not the stuff that wastes away and, and rusts away after we're gone. The treasure that we collect in this sphere are those three things that last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And as we go through this life, storing up in this treasure house of heaven, 
the increase of faith, hope, and love in our lives. We are transformed into the very image of God himself. So that when we go to be with him, we will be unified with him and one with him. I mean, most of us are much more concerned about amassing the easy stuff, right? You like the easy stuff, not the hard stuff like faith, hope, and love. That requires perseverance and patience and, and giving and sharing and self-sacrifice. We would all think, I think, kind of want life to be a little easier. But Jesus made a very interesting promise. He did not promise our lives would be easier. In fact, he promised the exact opposite. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. The world hated me. You don't think they're not going to, it's not going to hate you? But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I am with you always to the end of the age. I know sometimes we would like to have that Superman God that we can like talk into things. May try to make our life easier for us. Try to satisfy our, our wants and desires. But that's not God. God is the one who, in the midst of the trouble, in the midst of the turmoil of this world, he doesn't take the trouble away. He just walks with us through it because he fills our very being with himself. And when you think about it, that's enough. So I wanted to uh, try to open it up for, for questions um, and then I was going to sing a song because the cantor who was supposed to sing didn't show up, so <laughs> I guess couldn't make it. So um, any questions? I've got your microphone now because my microphone quit. Anybody got any questions? Cheryl. Did. Why do people need some sort of God and why do they want or need God to be someone who gives or takes away? All right. Um, you know, it's a fascinating thing that of all the creatures on this planet, which there are millions of species of creatures on this planet, only one species prays. That's us. 
Human beings are hardwired to know God. The scripture puts it this way, that we are made in God's image. But what that really means is, is that we are created with a spiritual nature in which we are hardwired to know God. And so we, all humans, have this need to have that, that experience with God, that knowledge of God, satisfied. However, the scripture talks about the fall of Adam and Eve. At the, at the very essence of that story, Adam and Eve, you know, the serpent tempts Eve, says, you will be like God. There's a desire, a selfish desire, on the part of humanity to control God. To be able to use God for their own purposes. Whether they're looking for the Santa Claus God, or the vending machine God, or the Superman God. Some way in which we can, by our action, bring God to do what we want. This is the difference between faith and magic. Magic is all about getting God to do what I want. Faith is me trusting God and entrusting myself to what God wants, giving myself to God. And humanity, unrepentant un humanity, unconverted humanity, let me say, prefers magic to faith prefers to manipulate and get from God rather than give ourselves to Him. Does that answer your question? Right. Other questions? Oh, she has another question. That's a good, that's an excellent question. Um, and I'll, I'll try to repeat it. That there are people who, Charles says, do not know God. Or by that, that's, that's assumed, and by that you mean. They don't have to know the one true God, or believe in the one true God, yet they believe in spirituality, and they experience that ocean of love, and, and all that, and that connection is to creation. So you're, by, when you say they don't experience, they don't profess to know the one true God. So they don't have, they're, they're not church people. But they have some belief in spirituality and they have a spiritual experience similar to the one I described where you have this, this, this sense of connectedness to God, this, um, this ocean of love. And um, I'm sure that's true, although I don't think I know anyone that fits that category. Okay, and that... My relative too. And we're not going to say any names. All right, because it's being recorded. Um, here's the thing. 
God is not impressed with our intellect. God is not impressed with um, our concepts of him. God is God. God is much bigger than we are. And that and the God will connect with anyone who searches for him in spirit and in truth and love and in truth, as we talk, whether or not they're Catholic or they profess to be Christians, because let's face it, do we not all know lots of people who profess to be Catholic or profess to be Christian and have, don't seem to have any connection with God at all? So wouldn't it stand to reason that there are people who do not profess to be Catholic, do not confess, profess to be Christian, who have kind of forged their own way forward in seeking to know God as best as they do, and God will respond to that. God always responds to people who seek him with their whole heart, who desire to know God in spirit and in truth, not in manipulation and selfishness. In fact, it's probably sometimes easier for people who do not have the burden of the church trying to tell them how to relate to God and just have them come looking for God with their whole heart. They will find God. Now, I obviously, I'm, I'm a priest. I love the church. And um, it, is, it is what we should be doing, is guiding people to connect to God. But unfortunately, we all know that there are too many people in the church, too many clergy in the church, who desire to see what they can, what they can get from the people, who have stopped being the shepherds of the flock and become the fleecers of the, of the flock. Jesus certainly had that experience. He actually got along much better with the people who sought God outside of the religious establishment in Jerusalem, then he got along with those in Jerusalem, didn't he? The Sadducees and the Pharisees, the Herodians, they're the ones who put him to death. Which is not me saying, oh, that's all stopped coming to church. <laughs> but we need to realize that what this is all about is our connection to God and not us punching some religious ticket, even though it may be a good religious ticket. It's about us connecting to God in spirit and in truth, experiencing God fully. And so people experience that outside the church because God loves everyone, not just the Catholics or the Christians. God loves everyone who seeks him in spirit and in truth. Any more questions? Thank you. 
You, you know, I think God is more pleased with someone who lives to give, even though he may not ever come into the church, than someone who comes to church every Sunday and refuses to give at all. We've seen both kinds. I know that there certainly is a sadness as you look back on his life and, and you think, his life showed that he knew Christ. He lived a life of Christ, of giving, of sharing, of caring. But yet he would not allow himself to do that overtly. And my guess is, I don't, I don't know your dad's story, but what I've seen happen often in, in people's lives is 